Welcome to From Russia with Blood, your source of gruesome, highly disturbing, and unbelievable but true crime stories from behind the Soviet curtain. Join our investigation as we go into the shadows to cast light on the nightmarish darkness of the Soviet past, if you dare. The episode you are about to hear contains material of an explicit sexual and criminal nature that some listeners may find extremely disturbing. This podcast is not suitable for minors. Please proceed at your own discretion. When Elle was five, her mother took her to the new winter sports stadium that had only recently opened in their town. For the first time in her life, clumsy Elle put on a pair of little white ice skates. Her mother helped her to do the laces. She stepped onto the ice and immediately fell down. Elle was rather frightened but did not cry. Her mother helped her back onto her feet, and the little girl went off skating on her own, first very slowly holding on to the wall eventually daring to leave the wall and skate to the center of the rink. Soon, Elle just started going round and round and round the rink and really loved it. After discussing their daughter's possible hobbies one Saturday evening, Elle's parents decided to take her to the conveniently open figure skating club at that new stadium. Their little girl joined the club and never looked back. They had artificial ice at the stadium in the summer, so Elle could train the whole year round. And she was so good at it that ten years later she was already attending a special academy and training for the Soviet National Under-18s Championship. A prize in the championship meant a place on the Olympic team of the Republic first, and then selection for the Olympic team of the USSR. Elle was a brilliant figure skater, and everyone who knew her had no doubt of her bright career in sports. Olympic gold was not unthinkable, they said. Nobody before her could execute the feats she performed on ice, they said. The Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics officially had several areas to be proud of. The word Sputnik became known in all the countries of the globe. It was the first country to launch man into space. The USSR had the best science in the world, the best free medical care in the world, the best army and navy in the world, the best sports teams in the world. Now, the real state of the free medical care was not known abroad. Soviet scientific schools were indeed well known and respected, albeit among noted specialist audiences. But everyone could see the launches of the Soyuz spacecraft and the marching troops during the military parades on Red Square in Moscow. And sports... 
Let me remind you that back in the 1970s, Canadian children would play ice hockey and divide themselves into teams, Canadians and Russians. And they would fight for the right to be the Russians because the Russians were so much better. And not just in ice hockey. In fact, sport was so propaganda-friendly that it logically became a huge state-governed industry. Talent spotters sought out gifted children in all the children's sports clubs throughout the country. And there was a sports club in each school, several in each House of Pioneers, at least one state-run children's activity center in a small town, and several in a big city. And it so happened that L was noticed, admired, and transferred to a special sports school where she was assigned to a personal trainer. The general idea was that such a gifted child would study all the subjects their ordinary friends at their ordinary schools did, and then would do special training after school. But the reality was different. The children from sports schools officially remained registered with their original schools, where they would get their threes on a grade scale from one, worst, to five, best, for tests and exams, more often than not in absentia. The state did not need a future world-class football player to know square roots or the conjugation of French verbs. No, the state needed a world-class football player to kick the ball better than anyone else in the world. And so, Elle spent her days training. Her schedule was extremely tight. Her every minute was filled with an activity. The notion of free time simply did not exist. She was doing what her trainer told her to do, and she did not know any better. Her trainer was everything to her. Teacher, mentor, advisor, masseur, and as she grew up, lover. He even had a special calendar on his desk which he used to mark her periods. Elle saw such calendars on the desks of her friends' trainers as well. Elle's body was receiving maximum physical stress, so every aspect of the young girl's health had to be taken into account. Nobody questioned that. And thus, L found nothing weird in the fact that every now and again the trainer would take her to his office with a desk and a massage table and a simple bench covered with brown artificial leather, tell her to undress, and then stick a thermometer into the girl's anus. Having made sure it was safe to have sex, although he did not use condoms, he would have her on the bench, doggy style. He would also explain all the benefits sperm brought to a growing girl athlete's body. And afterwards, she would go back down the typical Soviet school corridor, past the honor roll, past the schedule of classes, past a ficus plant and a no-smoking sign, and into the shower room. However, one day and with the championship looming closer, Elle found herself pregnant. 
she went to her mentor and asked him what to do. And it was not a very simple question to answer. The trainer not only had to think of the girl's health and career. It was not a problem for him to arrange a first-class abortion in a top-notch hospital for the girl. And he had no doubts whatsoever that the girl would regain top fitness after the operation. But he also had to think about his own career prospects. If the girl did not perform as expected at the championship, questions would be asked. Then if he took her to a hospital and declared that the father was unknown, he would be kicked out because obviously he was not vigilant enough to look after the state's future treasure, L, and spending the rest of his life as a P.E. teacher in some village school did not appeal to him at all. And if he admitted he was the father, not only would he get kicked out, but nobody would so much as let him come close to a child in training and he could not do anything else but train children. And, needless to say, his wife and son and daughter had to be provided for. The only way out seemed to be an illegal abortion. However, the trainer had no connections with the right doctors and had no idea how to look for them. He did know one trick, though. You see, Although children in sports schools spent most of their time doing sports, boys and girls trained together and slept in the same dorm, albeit in different rooms, naturally. So, for obvious reasons, the unpleasant matter of unwanted pregnancy was not unheard of, and he was definitely not the first to be confronted with such an issue. The usual contrivance that saved many a sport career was a ficus plant. These potted, dark green-leafed plants were ubiquitous. They did not require any special care. Well, any care for that matter. They could grow well in poorly lit administrative buildings, and they gave you the impression of being sort of close to nature. Every school Every medical waiting room and every canteen had at least one. So, all the tools needed to cause an abortion were a common spoon and a ficus bud. You would take the spoon and use it to open the vagina to see the cervix. You would then insert the bud into the cervix. Simple as that. You employed the procedure in the evening and if the miscarriage did not happen by the morning, next evening you repeated the procedure. Your average ficus never had a shortage of buds. It worked, eventually. A ficus bud looks like a sort of slender red rubber tube or horn, firm but pliable and easy to handle. And this is exactly what the trainer did. He took a bud from the ficus in the corridor, told Elle to change her usual position on the bench from doggy style to on her back, inserted the spoon, then the bud, 
then removed the spoon and told the girl to remove the bud in the morning, which she duly did. She came to the sports center, spent the whole day training, and, as last night's procedure brought no result, before sending her off to her dorm, the trainer repeated the procedure. Elle woke up the next morning, removed the bud, and, as usual, came to the sports center. However, she was feeling dizzy. She tried skating but fell, just as she did when she was five years old. She got up and stumbled over to her angry trainer who did not want to lose a day of exercising. Yet when he heard that the girl's head was spinning and she had a fever, he took her to his office, told her to lie down on the bench, and covered her with a mat for lack of a proper blanket. There was no question of taking her to the doctor, not before the abortion. Once she lost the fetus, he would rush her to the hospital, of course, but not yet. It's good you have a fever. It helps cause the abortion, he told the girl. And he gave her some hot tea with lemon and a couple of paracetamol tablets. Elle's state did not improve by the evening, so the trainer inserted the third bud and took her to the dorm in his own Lada car reminding her to take the bud out in the morning. But L did not. A pathologist did, during the autopsy. The pathologist also discovered that the muscle walls of the womb exhibited all the attributes of clostridial myonecrosis, or gas gangrene. The swelling, lurid purpling of the cervical area would have been visible the morning after the first bud had been applied. But then, the person looking inside the girl would have had to be a gynecologist using proper instruments and lighting, not a skating trainer with a spoon. The key to the mystery proved to be the lowly ficus. If you tear off a bud of the plant, you will notice white sticky and bitter sap running from the fresh wound. Ficus has one important faculty. It can suck all the bacteria from the soil and transport them upwards in the flow of its sap to the leaves without killing off the bacteria or getting sick itself. When the investigators found the ficus plant with three missing buds, in the corridor next to the trainer's office, they took a sample of its soil for forensic analysis. And the bacteria found in the soil and in the girl's body were identical. How did they find the culprit? It so happened that the meticulous trainer not only put the days of the girl's period in his calendar, he also marked the last three days of her life with the word ficus, and that very same calendar page displayed a dried-out stain of ficus sap. You have been listening to an episode of From Russia with Blood. It has been carefully researched and produced for you by the Hamovniki brothers. No matter how you found us or what interests brought you here, we're grateful to you for giving us your time.
and please keep listening. From Russia with Blood is entirely listener-supported. Go to coffee.com forward slash FWRB, that's ko-fi.com forward slash FWRB for more information. Contributors get exclusive access to episode scripts and extras, including Hamovniki Zastalon, informal reflections, conversations, and insights into the culture of the times. You can follow From Russia with Blood on your preferred podcast platform for more unbelievably gruesome and previously unknown stories of true crime from behind the Soviet curtain.